Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 18, Matthew writes, And Jesus, walking near the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee, from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. The chapter, chapter 4, began with Jesus and the temptation by the devil in verses 1 through 11. And then the chapter continued with Jesus and the torment of the desperate in verses 12 through 17. But now the chapter will end with Jesus... And the call, if you will, of discipleship in verses 18 through 22, the king, the king will begin his kingdom by calling ordinary people to an extraordinary task. And what is that task? Jesus will say, follow me because I'm going to make you fishers of men and the normal expected outcome of discipleship is going to be evangelism and this is going to be something that's going to be important for us to incorporate in our thinking that when a person is saved and comes into a right relationship with God discipleship takes place which leads to evangelism which leads to discipleship which leads to evangelism which leads to discipleship which leads to To love and service and more evangelism. The Lord Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost, it says in Luke 19.10. In Luke's gospel chapter 4 verses 18 and 19 when Jesus is in Nazareth and he opens the scroll of Isaiah and he says the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, set at liberty those who are oppressed, to Proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Jesus comes to rescue, to rescue people who find themselves in a dark place, to rescue people who find themselves in an empty place, to rescue people who find themselves in bondage, and to deliver them. And the worst 
Bondage, of course, is the bondage of sin. And the Lord in his wisdom elects to use people. To reach people. And so discipleship takes place and evangelism takes place. It's interesting to me that evangelism has been called the great sob of God. And the reason why it's called that is because God is in heaven not looking for reasons to discount people or dismiss people or forget about people. It's because he loves them and cares about them and wants to reach them. You know, I recall vividly as an unbeliever, as a person who, who was growing up not believing in Jesus, not following Jesus, not loving Jesus, and hearing this reoccurring message that God loves you and God loves you and God loves you. And quite frankly, I wanted to believe it, but I didn't believe it. Didn't believe it could be possible. As I looked around this broken world, this filthy world, this disgusting world, it, it occurred to me that how could God, how could God possibly love this world or love the people in it? And I remember people coming up to me saying, God loves you. And finally, in frustration, I just simply said, prove it. Prove it to me. And people came up with all kinds of interesting things that they said Few of them were, were satisfying, but one person eventually said, here in his love, in that way we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And I began to understand something. That a real God demonstrates a real love towards a broken world, and as amazing as understanding and even believing that God loves someone, just like the song says, I scarce could take it in. It also occurred to me how amazing it is that God not only loves us, but wants to use us to fulfill his plans, to be a place and people who can give hope and give grace and give mercy, who can love people and minister to people and serve hurting people. This last week, I read about the funeral of Miles Monroe, and maybe some of you know him. He is a pastor and a minister who was in Bermuda. And what you may not know is that he grew up in a world of profound hardship and pain. And someone said to him when he was very young, you'll never amount to anything. And he started crying and his mother handed him a Bible and said, read the book of Ephesians. And he went to his room sobbing and he opened up the book of Ephesians and he said, now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that you could ask or think. Miles Monroe is reading that and he's beginning to understand that there's a God, there's a God who can make you way more than you could ever be on your own. And he said, I never ever in a million years thought that I was going to be a pastor. I just wanted to love people and serve them. He and his wife died in a plane crash and literally thousands of people came to his funeral a few days ago. God is in the business of changing people. 
where other people dismiss them and don't want to have anything to do with them. The call to discipleship, look what it says in verse 18. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. We're going to be introduced to the brothers, and the point of the passage, oddly enough, isn't the brothers. The point of the passage is going to be the person who's doing the call. But as our study unfolds in the book of Matthew, we're going to learn more and more about these brothers. Andrew has been called proto-kletos. The reason why he's called that, it it means first called. And the reason why we know Andrew's first called is because of John's gospel, chapter 1, where the Bible speaks of John the Baptist pointing to Jesus, saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And according to John's gospel, there's two followers of John the Baptist who hear those words. One of them is Andrew, we discover. He goes and he finds his brother Peter. And we'll begin to discover things about Andrew, that he's enthusiastic about Jesus because he'll go out and find his brother. We discover that he's willing to be number two in order for Jesus to be number one. And we're going to find out he's inquisitive. And we're also going to find out that he's resourceful. And what's interesting to me is he will be sent out on a mission to preach That the kingdom of heaven is at hand and heal the sick and cleanse the lepers and raise the dead and cast out demons. And God will change his life. But he is the person who will actually bring Peter to Jesus for introduction. And we know from John's gospel that what is happening here in chapter 4 isn't a call to believe in Jesus as the Lord and the Savior and the Messiah, but it is a specific calling to discipleship. And in verse 19, it says, Then he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And in that single sentence, We find the secrets of discipleship, even though the word discipleship doesn't appear anywhere in the text. And my simple outline of this passage is the source of the call. Then he said, it's Jesus who's calling, the direction of the called, follow. The object for those who are called, me. The results for the called, I'm going to make you. And then the work of the called, Fishers of men. So I don't have a whole lot of time, but I just want to briefly, briefly talk about this passage because it's so important. Jesus is the source of the call. The invitation to follow Jesus as a disciple doesn't come from me. It isn't this pulpit and this Bible and me opening up the Bible. Your husband can't call you and your wife can't call you and your mother can't call you and your sister can't call you. God may use the instruments of mothers and brothers and sisters. God may use family and friends, but the voice behind the voice has to be Jesus. In the end, the call to discipleship must come from Jesus. 
And I grew up in a generation that secular sources invited us not to listen to the voice of God or the voice of the Bible or the voice of Jesus. It called us to question all kinds of authority. There were bumper stickers when I was growing up that said, question authority. And then on the other side of the bumper sticker, they would write, don't trust anyone over 30. And then, of course, I turned 30. You don't realize that when you question authority, you question the government, you question leadership, you question everything, that it, in the end, that there will be people who will question God. In the end, the devil will invite you to appeal to some authority. And for most of us, it'll be ourselves. It'll be our passions. It'll be our lust. It'll be our will. In the end, each and every one of us will appeal to something or someone. And in Acts chapter 10, verse 36, it doesn't leave us guessing. It says, Jesus Christ is the Lord of all. And so really, the big question isn't whether or not Jesus is Lord. By the way, he is. Remember, Paul will later write that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. There's going to become a point where everyone understands that, realizes it, recognizes it. The issue is going to be whether or not we will concede and recognize his authority and ownership. But it's more than that. It's not just simply the recognition of his authority and ownership. It's the recognition and authority of his ownership over you. Over you. Over your life. Several decades after this event took place, Peter wrote in his epistle in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, In your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. The implication being it could be done. You could do that. Jesus asked Peter to set Christ apart as Lord in his life and then was given instructions to give you that same message. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say in Luke chapter 6 verse 46. So Jesus doesn't simply invite us to accept his authority and accept his ownership, but he also literally calls upon you to obey him. And I know what some of you are thinking. I want to, I want to, I want to. But sometimes my will is weak. I know, I know, mine is too. Weak-willed people are given a wonderful, wonderful provision and resource. It's called the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been given in order to enable King Jesus to sit on the throne of our lives. You see, it, it isn't just about you. It's the fact that God is willing to give you the resources you need in order to do what God has asked you to do. Francis Havergal wrote, Other lords have long held sway. Now thy name alone to hear. Thy dear voice alone obey is my daily, hourly prayer. Let my heart be all thine own. Let me live in thee alone. 
Jesus calls. And Jesus gives the direction. Follow. And so when Jesus says, follow me, it isn't simply a reference to intimacy or proximity. It includes that, but it includes way more. The moment that Jesus says, follow, the expectation is that he's going to go somewhere. And there's two kinds of people in your life and in your world. Has anyone ever said to you, to you hey, hey, follow me? And one of two things was true. You knew where they were going or you didn't. And if you didn't know, did you say, where are you going? Where are you headed? Jesus says, follow me. The text doesn't say to us that Andrew and Peter say, Jesus, where are you headed? We know from the rest of the verse that there's going to be an amazing crusade that's taking place. Multitudes are going to show up. We know that there's going to be teaching. We know that there's going to be preaching. We know that there's going to be healing. And it all sounds fairly exciting. But the more we read the book of Matthew, and the further we go, we're going to discover that it's going to begin with teaching and preaching and crowds and healing. But eventually the crowds are going to go away and people are going to walk away. And people who want hope and people who want healing and people who want bread are going to be disappointed. And they're going to walk away. And Jesus is going to continue to walk in the direction of Jerusalem where he is going to encounter a rest, a cross, and a resurrection. You know what's interesting? In verse 19, read it again, follow me and I'm going to make you fishers of men. Nowhere, nowhere in the text does the word discipleship even appear. But it fairly reeks of discipleship because how can you read it and come to a conclusion other than it's about discipleship? Remember, disciple means someone who learns and discipleship are the things that we learn. Disciple is a learner and discipleship incorporates the things that we learn. By the way, The word Christian appears three times in the Greek New Testament. The word believer appears two times in the Greek New Testament. The word disciple and discipleship appears 269 times in the Greek New Testament. This should tell you something. This should awaken some sort of curiosity inside of you. Because when Jesus says follow, I think it's okay for you to say, where are you going? It's also fair to say, have you heard that call? Have you received the invitation? I'm going to suggest that All of you have received an invitation to believe in Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior. And 
another invitation has been extended to follow him, to love him. It speaks of proximity and intimacy. And for Peter and Andrew and for James and John, eventually it's going to begin with a ministry of teaching and preaching and healing. But the journey that Jesus will take them on is going to also include heartache, setback, sorrow, painful moments. Billy Graham, maybe the greatest evangelist of the 20th century, said, quote, Jesus invited us not to a picnic, but to a pilgrimage, not to a frolic, but to a fight. He offers us not an excursion, but an execution. Our Savior said that we have to be ready to die to self and to sin and to the world. And then the object of the call, me. Follow me. Jesus is the source of the calling, but he's also the object of the calling. When Jesus says this, he, say, he doesn't say follow Gino or, or follow a particular church or, or follow a particular philosophical predisposition or even to follow a set of specific distinctives that mark you as being different. Jesus says, follow me. And you'll remember, you'll remember that following Jesus means listening to Jesus and obeying Jesus. You'll remember that Jesus will later say in John chapter 13, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples. It's the presence of love inside of the person who's following him. And when Jesus says, as I have loved you, by the way, as we continue our journey in Matthew's gospel, as we go through chapter 6 and chapter 7, chapter 8, we go through the entire gospel, you're going to discover something. And that is that the love of Jesus is a selfless love, and it's a forgiving love, and it's a sacrificial love. And so he's not just simply talking about warm, fuzzy feelings that well up in the side of your stomach. He's going to be inviting us to a selfless love and a sacrificial love and a forgiving love. And the love principle will become a principle of discipleship that's manifested in the way that you are on the inside, but also it's going to lead to a service principle. Later on in John's gospel, chapter 15, Jesus will say in verses 7 and 8, if you remain, that means continue, if you remain or continue in me, and if my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. This is my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. Love on the inside becomes the reality of discipleship. Service on the outside becomes the reality of discipleship. And so love on the inside service on the outside. But Jesus says, and I'll make you fishers of men. I'm going to do the work. You know, it's interesting to me. It's not you making yourself better, making yourself smarter, making yourself more gifted. Jesus is making a promise. 
Jesus is making a promise, and the promise is, I'll mold you. I'll shape you. I'll direct you. I'll give you what it is that you need in order to have what you need. You know, it's interesting. You're going to find out something about Andrew, and you're going to find out something about Peter, and you're going to find out something about James, and you're going to find out a whole lot about John. As you find out about these different things about them, you're going to discover that there's moments when they are selfish and rude. You're going to find out that they're going to incorporate not the best of humanity but sometimes the worst of humanity and in moments of honesty in our own life and in our own heart, we begin to say, oh, that sounds a lot like me. But Jesus is at work. It was Richard Parker who famously said and rarely gets the credit for, God doesn't call people who are qualified He calls people who are willing, and then he qualifies them. Because you might be thinking that you're not qualified for discipleship. You don't have enough religious training. You don't have this. You don't have that. I'm too old. I'm too young. I'm too poor. I'm too preoccupied with my life. But eloquence or education will never serve as a satisfying substitute for a right heart and a right life. And so Jesus says, I'll make sure that you have a right heart. And I'll make sure that you have everything that you need in order to serve in the capacity that I've called you to serve serve and then the work of the called look what it says I'll make you fishers of men you'll note that the character and service precede evangelism he's using fishers of men as a euphemism these are fishermen they catch fish so when Jesus says I'm going to make you fishers of men He's talking about an evangelism that results in a change in the way that they're going to think and feel in the direction that they're going to go for their life. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, Paul will write, So whether I'm at home or whether I'm away from home, it's my constant ambition to please him. Paul knew that when Jesus became the Lord of your life and the reality in your life and the priority of your life, that it would be your ambition to please him. But the reason why I think this is important, even in the place where it's it's at, that character and service precede evangelism. The Bible doesn't know about an evangelism absent character, absent a heart, absent a life that's been changed by Jesus. Is it possible that there are people who don't even believe the gospel who preach the gospel? I think the answer is yes. Is it possible that there are people who not only don't believe the gospel, but they live like hell? But when they preach the gospel, people get saved and people go, well, I don't understand it. How is it possible that that Jesus could use such a wicked person to preach the gospel and that people get saved? It's because it's not the wicked person. It's the gospel that saves people. But the Bible doesn't know about evangelism. 
apart from a life that's been changed from the inside out, that is committed to service and committed to love. And so, Paul says, I'm going to make you fishers of men, and and it's even possible that you can be an expert on fish, and you can be an expert on lures, and you can have a vast knowledge of fish. You can know exactly where they swim. You can endure discomfort and hardship in order to catch fish. But Jesus is looking for something more than just simply a skill set. He's looking for a heart set. My father loved to fish. My son, Jonathan, loves to fish. They're willing to get up early. They're willing to stay late. They're willing to put their lure and their line in the water. And by the way, what is the great characteristic of a fisher person? Patience. I don't have the patience to fish. My father used to say, my son still says, isn't this fun? Isn't this great? And I go, not really. I don't see the attraction. But when the fish bites, then all of a sudden there's a sense of excitement and enthusiasm. And in verse 20, look what it says. They immediately left their nets and they followed him. The call to discipleship will result in an immediate response. We could even add that to the list. The response of the call. They immediately follow him. And we're going to talk about this a little bit more. But in order to follow Jesus, you have to be willing to let Jesus lead. That's what the very nature of following requires. It requires that you allow Jesus to do what Jesus is asking you to do. And it says in verse 21, going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, with Zebedee in the boat, or in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Again, once again, the the response is prompt, immediate. But I'm also going to point out it's something else, permanent. We sing the song, the cross before me, the world behind me. The cross before me, the world behind me. In order to follow Jesus, you have to leave something and you have to go in a direction. And even though there's going to be pain and even though there's going to be sorrow and even though there's going to be setback and even though there's going to be difficulty, they're going to go forward. W. Griffith Thomas likened their response to hearing the commands of a king that needed to be obeyed. And you can imagine when a king shows up there's going to be some sort of response that's, that's expected. We live in a culture and a society where, where uh, imagine if the president of the United States calls you on the phone this afternoon and says, your country needs you. And you go, click, hang up on them. There used to be a time when getting a call from the president of the United States and saying, you know what? You have a skill set. 
You have a specific skill set that your country needs. And guess what? We, we need you. We value what it is that you have and what it is that you have to offer. But that's part of the point that is being made here, that without hesitation, without reservation, uh, or a change of heart, they will leave the boat. Here I think that it means the source of employment. And leave their father. I think that here it means strong family ties. Now, does this mean that the Bible means that you have to leave your source of employment or you have to leave strong family ties? I don't think that that's what it's saying. I don't think that everybody who's called a disciple, when Jesus called them, he says, oh, by the way, you're going to have to quit your job. Oh, by the way, your family arrangements are going to need to change. That's not the point. For some people, you will have to quit your job. When Mickey Cullen heard Billy Graham preach and, and um, he says, come forward and receive Christ as your savior. And he continued to hang out with his gangster friends and he com- continued to commit crimes. He said, I, I, I didn't know that you meant that when I, I came to Jesus that that means I had to give up my job. Well, if your job is killing people and stealing stuff, Yeah, there is that kind of an expectation. It seems crazy to me that I even have to say that. But the truth is, and the point is, the text isn't saying quit your job, leave your family. What the text really is saying is what is your priority in life? Does the call to discipleship include and require a reevaluation of your priorities. It does. And this is part of the point that's being made in the text. Jesus is inviting you to put them all the way to the top of the list. That Jesus is at the top of the priority list. Not your job. Not your family. The call to discipleship is a radical call that supersedes all earthly ties. John MacArthur rightly points out that when Jesus calls Peter and Andrew and James and John, these are crusty outdoorsmen. These are uncut jewels. He goes on and he says, quote, these disciples had little education, little spiritual perception, possibly little religious training of any sort as their new master began to teach them. Even when he spoke in parables, they often lacked full comprehension of his meaning. They were often self-centered. They were often inhospitable, unquote. And all of a sudden you begin to understand something. You mean Jesus would call someone who doesn't actually have his or her act together? Well i got to tell you something. If the Bible is inspired, and I believe that it is, and if Jesus' call to discipleship for Andrew and Peter and James and John becomes indicative of the kind of people, human beings, that Jesus will call, guess what? Now you're, remember what I said. God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies those who are willing To respond to the invitation. Billy Graham rightly said. Salvation is free. But discipleship costs 
Everything we have, he's right. You're saved by grace through faith and that not of yourself. Salvation is free. Salvation is free. You get your sins forgiven and the reality of purchasing heaven has been made by Jesus. There's nothing you can say. There's nothing that you can do. There's nothing that, you, that can make salvation cost. Jesus has paid it all. And salvation is always by grace. And it's always by blood. It always involves a sacrifice. And it always involves a person. But discipleship is a willingness to stop walking in one direction and start walking in a new direction. And look what it says in verse 23. And Jesus went about all the Galilee... Teaching in their synagogues. Preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And by the way, here in chapter 4, verse 23, is the first mention of the word gospel in the New Testament. Here. Preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Healing all kinds of sickness all kinds of disease among the people. And the verse will serve the function of both a summary and a survey of the rest of Matthew's gospel, at least in the next few chapters, in chapter 5, which we're coming on. Chapter 6 and chapter 7, it's going to be teaching and preaching. And then in chapters 8 and 9, it's going to be a list of miracles that take place. The call to discipleship begins with the command to follow Jesus and then continues with the example of Jesus. So he says, follow him, and then he says, do what, I want, what I'm doing. And he reveals three methods. Jesus will teach. Jesus will preach. Jesus will heal. I want you to note something. When it says... In verse 23, and Jesus went about all the Galilee teaching in all of their synagogues. I'm going to suggest to you that this isn't just simply instruction. It's more than that. It's information, instruction, and direction. And look the chief place where it takes place, in the synagogues. Now, this last trip to Israel, I discovered something. They've uncovered a new synagogue in Migdol, which is Magdala, where Mary Magdalene is from. And if you go to Israel and you go to the Galilee in Capernaum, there's an ancient synagogue. And as you go around the villages and places that are in that area, the synagogue was the place of meeting. And it was the place where sometimes the Bible was read and where, where instruction took place. But more and more scholars are beginning to believe that it serves as a social setting as well, a focal point where people could come together and talk about the things that are important and I'm going to suggest to you that for more and more people in our culture and society, there's different gathering places that we use as a culture and as a society. This last week, my brand new baby, grandbaby, Peyton, was taken to the hospital. She was diagnosed with a virus, and my, and my Carolyn and Jonathan, Carolyn posted on her Facebook Taking, you know, they took the baby to the emergency care. Then they took the baby to the hospital in order to raise her her oxygen levels. And I remember, you know, the only reason why I even go there is so I can see pictures of my babies. But then I remember posting underneath there praying, and I began to realize 
the value that this can have. As you can tell hundreds and even thousands of people what's going on. There is a way to let lots and lots of people know things that are important. And guess what? God has placed you in unique circumstances where you can get information to people who desperately need it. And And I'm going to suggest to you the reason why he goes to the synagogues isn't because it's a holy place and that's where you have to gather. I'm going to suggest to you that that might be one of the reasons, but the most important reason that he's going there is because that's where the people are. And so it should make sense to you that that he's teaching in the places where the people are and then he's preaching. Matthew says, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. So the emphasis begins with teaching and continues with preaching and he preaches the gospel of the kingdom. And and like I said, this is the first mention of gospel, but the word means good news. And just like when my daughter-in-law posts the news about baby Peyton, then she posts the news, guess what? Peyton's oxygen levels are up. She's been released from the hospital Hallelujah, praise the Lord. But the good news here is the good news about salvation. It isn't just simply generic good news. It's the good news that your sin can be forgiven. Your heart can be cleansed, that you can go to heaven. That's what he's talking about. But I'm also going to suggest to you that that it, it means something else. William MacDonald writes, when Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom, he was announcing his coming as king of the Jews and explaining the terms of admission to that kingdom. And that's what teaching and preaching should do. Explain the terms, not only of who is king, but how you get into that kingdom. And we know already that it's repent of our sin and receive Jesus as our Lord and our Savior. He's going to be talking about that. But what's interesting to me is that teaching and preaching precede healing. Now that doesn't mean that healing is unimportant. But what I want to point out to you is that in the context, teaching and preaching, and then all of a sudden healing takes place, the healing includes, according to the text, all kinds of sickness, all kinds of disease among the people. The presence of the disease and the presence of the the sickness should cause us to do a couple of things. The first thing is to point out that it's there. We live in a broken world. We live in a diseased world. We live in a sick world. There are people who are broken and who are hurt and who are sick and the sickness doesn't seem to be going away. But the healing, the healing, the healing of these sicknesses speak of the powerful presence of a powerful divine savior who is also the divine king in teaching and preaching. We don't want to erode or trivialize the confident faith that God can and will heal servants and saints and sinners. But here's part of the point that I think I want to bring to you. And that is there's this expectation of a restoration of wholeness and wellness, the vanquishing of sickness and disease when Jesus shows up. Why is that important? We're going to find out a little bit more 
when we look at the results of the discipleship, look again in verse 24, then his fame went throughout all Syria and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments and those who were demon-possessed and those who were epileptics and paralytics and he healed them. The results of discipleship included teaching, preaching, healing, but now fame and faith. And following, but not fame and faith and following like you might think. When you read the word fame, you probably think somebody who's famous. Because they've done something remarkable. The Greek word that translates fame is akoe. It comes from a verb akuo. It's the Greek word which means to hear. And in the noun sense, it means that which is heard. And so here in verse 24, we could translate this, then the news, the news about him, the news about him. Now, it shouldn't shock you or surprise you that when Jesus is announcing that he's the king in a coming kingdom, And that part of the benefits of being in God's kingdom is wholeness and wellness. You can imagine for people who have been experiencing hurt and pain and brokenness, this is some fairly good news. And so when Matthew speaks of the province of Syria, he means all of that area that would incorporate modern Syria, modern Lebanon, all of the Galilee. And it would incorporate part of the Jordan, but when it's talking about all of these things, it's talking about the news about Jesus goes north, the news about Jesus goes east, the news about Jesus goes west. Is the Bible saying, if you become a disciple, you're going to be famous? That's not what the text is saying. The text isn't promising you fame. The text is promising that discipleship gives you an opportunity to make Jesus famous when they hear the news about him. But let's be blunt for just a moment. Are there famous Christians? I think that the answer is yes. By the way, have you ever heard of Andrew, Peter, James, and John Well, yeah, but can you imagine if Andrew, Peter, James, and John, when Jesus said, follow me, and they said, no, thanks, sorry, follow me, where are you going? Teaching, preaching, healing, it's going to be great, it's going to be an adventure, they're going to write about it, people are going to sing songs about it, Peter, they're even going to make a made-for-TV movie about your life. They're going to call it the big fisherman. It's true that there are, they are going to be famous. But there is a person who's mentioned in the New Testament, a rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and he asks him a question and Jesus looks at him and loves him and he says, oh, by the way, sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, come and follow me. And the Bible says that he went away sorrowful because he was very rich. What was that rich young ruler's name? 
text doesn't tell us because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because he didn't say yes to the invitation. He said no to the invitation. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that invitation where you are going to be called to the most remarkable events that have ever taken place to witness the speeches that are going to be made and the miracles that are going to take place and the reality of the transformation of lives? But the point of this passage isn't so that you can be famous but rather that the news about Jesus is going to generate faith and they, the disciples and the others, look what it says, brought to him all sick people. What that means is faith on behalf of those who were sick and faith on behalf of those who were afflicted and faith on behalf of those who were tormented by demons or insanity or paralysis. When you look at the text and it says, Those who were demon-possessed. Yeah, there were really demon-possessed people. And those who were epileptic. The word in the original language is a very interesting word. It, It is a word that speaks of being struck by the moon. It's an idiomatic expression that speaks of mental and emotional distress or mental and emotional illness. In the French language, they have a saying. They say, je crois que vous êtes dans la lune. That means, I think that you're kind of crazy. I think you're out to lunch. But it comes from dans la lune, meaning on the moon. It's an idiomatic expression that was adopted by a bunch of cultures that when people would act crazy... They wouldn't necessarily associate it with demons, but they knew that there were powerful forces at work that made people act crazy. And the point of the passage, again, isn't just to simply differentiate between demon-possessed people and mentally and emotionally distressed people and physically distressed people. The whole point becomes Jesus as king and the king in this new kingdom is going to offer you affordable health care. No, it's not even affordable health care. It's not an affordable health care plan where you you pay part of your money or 10% of your income or 30% of your income. He's going to be the health care system. Have you ever gone to the movies and you are getting ready to watch the movie and previews of coming attractions come on and as the previews of the coming attractions come on you'll see, ooh, the new X-Men movie is coming. Ooh, the, the new Iron Man movie. All the Marvel comic ones are always great. And as they're coming on, you see these exciting things that are happening in that world. This is what's happening in the text. It's a preview of the coming kingdom where people who are mentally and emotionally distressed, people who are physically afflicted, people who are demonically enslaved experience liberation. By the way, does Jesus heal these people because he loves them? I think the answer is yes. Does he care about them and have compassion for them? I think that the answer is yes. But is it also happening to authenticate the reality of his identity, his mission, and his message? You see, it's one thing for a leader to say, 
I'm going to tell you about a kingdom that's coming, and I'm going to tell you about admission into that kingdom, and then I'm going to tell you about all of the benefits of citizenship in that kingdom. Now, all of a sudden, you begin to understand what's happening. B.B. Warfield wrote, disease and death must have almost been eliminated for a brief season from that region. Can you imagine living in a world where mental and emotional distress and demonic enslavement and physical illness disappears? Now we understand what it means in verse 25. Great multitudes followed him from the Galilee, from Decapolis. That's all of the regions to the east. It comes from two words, Deca and Polis, ten and cities. This is that wide Gentile area, Jerusalem to the south, Judea to the south. All of the stuff that's taking place beyond the Jordan, the multitudes follow him for healing. For hope, for bread. But we're going to discover something that even those crowds are going to eventually dissipate because Jesus is going to make some demands and conditions that the multitudes aren't going to necessarily embrace. And by the time we get to the 12th chapter of Matthew, when, Matthew when, when Jesus looks out at his disciples and he says, okay, we need to go to Jerusalem now. And the disciples say, why do you want to do that? Those people hate you and they want to kill you. And Jesus says, that's exactly right. They're going to take me. They're going to arrest me. They're going to kill me. Why would we want to go there? Jesus says, because I'm also going to be raised from the dead. You see, you know what's exciting about discipleship and following Jesus, even if it means going to the place of death? You're also going to find yourself in the place where where he comes back to life. Vance Havner said, what our Lord said about cross-bearing and obedience is not in the fine print. It's in the bold print, right on the face of the contract. You mean if I decide to follow Jesus, it might mean selfless love, it might mean sacrifice, it might be hardship, it might mean setback? The answer is yes. Elizabeth Elliot offered this comment a year after her husband was killed in the jungles of Ecuador. He, along with four other men, flew a plane into Ecuador in order to minister to the Aka Indians, and he found himself, and those men died. A year afterward, Elizabeth Elliot held a press conference on behalf of the five widows, and she said to the press, quote, We pray that if any, anywhere, are fearing that the cost of discipleship is too great, that they may be given a glimpse of the treasures in heaven promised to those who forsake this world and embrace the king. Everyone who walks with Jesus will walk away from something. 
Preacher Henry Ward Beecher during the Civil War said, the strength and happiness of a man consists in finding out the way in which God is going and then elects to go that way. Jesus, where are you going? I'm going to walk away from this world. I'm going to walk away from these circumstances. I'm going to walk away from these ambitions and these desires because there's something else that my father has asked me to do. You see, the call to discipleship is a call to follow Jesus and to know Jesus and to go with Jesus into the future that he has planned for himself. And when you find yourself in that place, then everything changes. Are you ready? You ready? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you and praise you Lord, we know that the call to discipleship isn't a call to salvation as much as it is a call to commitment, to follow Jesus where he's going into a future that he has planned, a willingness to experience intimacy and proximity and trust, a willingness to be changed by him, and the opportunity to be used by you. To love people and to minister to them and to serve them and to not be threatened or intimidated with mental and emotional distress, physical disability, or even demonic captivity. But that we can, with all of our heart and all of our might, anticipate a world where Jesus is both King and Lord. And it makes perfect sense that in that kingdom there's going to be wholeness and wellness of mind, of heart, and of body. And so, Lord, we pray that you would prepare us for the adventure that's going to continue as we study this gospel and as we make the commitment to walk into the future that you've planned for each and every one of us as we follow Jesus. Amen. Let's stand.